0: Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And today, our interesting person is Dr. Carol Swain. Uh, Dr. Swain has a long train of degrees, uh, working backwards from her, her most uh, recent. She has a Master of Legal Studies from Yale Law. She's a PhD in Political Science from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She has a Master's in Poli Sci from Virginia Tech, a BA in Criminal Justice from Roanoke College, and an Associate's degree from Virginia Western Community College. She has taught as a tenured professor at Princeton and Vanderbilt from where she retired in 2017. Um, She was also the co-chairwoman for President Donald Trump's 1776 commission, which was instituted as a response to the 1619 project from the New York Times. Um, Along with, she is the recipient of numerous honors and and awards um, in positions in and out of government commissions, and she is a a prolific author, most recently, of Black Eye for America, How Critical Race Theory is Burning Down the House, along with a second book, Countercultural Living, which um, is a book for Christians living in what perhaps could now be termed a post-Christian America, although I will ask Carol uh, whether she thinks that that is an apt description um, or not in the course of our discussion, I'm sure. Uh, But Carol, it's a great pleasure to have you here on High Noon. Well, thank you so much. Um, Before we delve into your your work, um, your published work, can I ask you just a little bit about your life and how you ended up getting uh, these five degrees and writing a series of academic and popular books, working on the 1776 commission, you know, sort of how did you you end up uh, doing all those things in your life?
1: You know, it's interesting. I don't know how anyone ends up where they do, but it was certainly not planned. Um, Not really. I was one of 12 children, second from uh, the oldest, number two. uh, Born and raised in rural poverty, southwestern uh, Virginia. Spent the earliest part of my life in a two-room shack without indoor plumbing. We were so poor, we didn't even have an outhouse. (laughs) So there are a lot of people you know, of my age that were born and raised in the country, and maybe they didn't have indoor plumbing, but they always had an outhouse. Uh, I dropped out of school after completing the eighth grade. i married at age 16. Uh, By the time I was 21, I had three small children and I ended up, you know, getting divorced, earning a high school equivalency, going to a community college and getting the first of five degrees. My first degree was in business. I thought I would be a store manager, you know, managing a store at the mall. I applied for jobs. I was told that I needed a four year degree. Made a decision that I was going to be an honor student and that I was going to get that four-year degree. And the reason I wanted to be an honor student was I wanted something to put on the applications that would distinguish myself. Checked out books on the li- from the library. I purchased books on how to make A's in college, how to take essay exams, how to study. I graduated magna cum laude while working full-time, 40 hours a week, nights and weekends at the community college library, going to school uh uh, during the day and it was perfect job for someone like uh, me that had children. Uh, when I had to bring them to work, I could. I could set them at a table and give them a book and and have them be at th- work with me while I was uh, doing my job and then um, when I was graduating with the four year degree with honors and I had distinguished myself at that college, I realized that I didn't want a cr- criminal justice career. I thought I would uh, you know, get a master's degree and work for the government. But while I was getting that master's degree, my professors discovered me and they urged me to get a PhD. I was not interested, been terribly shy all of my life. In fact, I was not delivered of the shyness until I was in my forties. But um, this coincided with the recession of the 1980s. And even though I was an honor student, I was distinguished, people in my community knew me I could not get a job uh, doing the things I uh, wanted to do. So I applied to graduate school and then uh, ended up at uh, University of North Carolina and uh, distinguished myself as a student. I was given conference papers across the country. I had my own short list of schools. Uh, When I entered the job market, I had um, uh, multiple offers and signing bonuses and Princeton persuaded me to start my career there. I was there about a decade and then Vanderbilt hired me, promoted me to full professorship and I was there for another 18 years. So that's my story.
0: I so wanted to ask you, given that you you have, um, you know, education has obviously been this huge force uh, in in your life in terms of of shaping the American dream and, um, and getting you where you wanted to go. How do you feel about the state of American higher education today? Um, because if you look at, for example, recent polls, um, you can see that there's basically a nosedive off a cliff in the number of Americans who are who say that the university system is a net positive as a whole and that they trust the university system. So this used to be a point of agreement between Republicans and Democrats and independents. everybody across the American political spectrum thought that the the American university system was a great asset to the country. And what you find in the last like let's say four or five, six years is that both Republicans and independents that trust has fallen off the map. Um it's it's completely gone way, way below fifty percent to the point where uh, even very high support from Democrats cannot keep the university trust level uh, above water above fifty percent. Um, you know, I guess how do you feel about the university system as a whole and and what it provides to the country as an asset or detriment? And then, second, if if you think it can be um, you know reformed into an asset, uh, if you think it's not, or if you think it, we kinda need a, to cut our losses as a country and we need to, uh, for example, look at a lot of alternatives to a university as a, as a function of exactly what it did for you, right? This this pipeline um, in, in certain terms of moving Americans, uh, upwardly mobile Americans, you know, into the middle class and, and into um, even academic life. Um, do you think that we need an alternative to do that or do you think we can reform the university system as it is?
1: Well, you've asked me a lot of questions and I'll try to remember yeah, them all. <laughs> it, it saddens me what universities have become because I would uh, argue that when I uh, started uh, college, that they were more or less a uh, marketplaces of ideas uh, with the community college, you get a different kind of student. And so we were there to equip ourselves to get jobs for the most part. And it was only later that I decided to pursue the four year uh, degree, but, during that era when i started school the big push was for equal opportunity and non-discrimination there were the uh, black um, student unions and i guess now you'd call them affinity groups so there were affinity groups on campus back then but um you know that was just part of the landscape i never joined the black uh, student union because i was too busy studying and raising my family i just didn't have the extra time And so that was a a decision that I made and I watched uh, uh, the decline of the university system, but for the most part, I thought the experience was positive. When I was in graduate school, there were um, uh, some conservative professors and I myself was a Democrat for most of my life, even uh, in academia and so you know, I supported affirmative action. And affirmative action was basically uh, equal opportunity and non-discrimination. It wasn't what we have today where you have with diversity, equity and inclusion and CRT, where they're pushing for um, equal outcomes and not equal opportunity. And where um, they are saying to be inclusive, you have to have affinity groups rather than everyone coming together. And so for the most part, my educational experience uh, at five universities was positive. Uh, I was uh, supported by my professors and most of my professors were Caucasian men uh, who encouraged me, who challenged me and who helped equip me for the the success that I had later. And I guess uh, what made it easier for them is that I was interested in, you know, being successful, and so I didn't mind working hard. And so I had mentors, and they advised me, and you know, whatever they told me to do that would help make me successful, I did what my advisors advised. And then the early part of my career was very um, positive. Uh, my first book won three national prizes. It's been cited by the U.S. Supreme Court. I distinguished myself. Um, And, but I went through a period of depression within academia. Some of it was personal, but I became disillusioned uh, early on after tenure by the things that I was seeing, by some of the hypocrisy, but it was nothing like uh, what universities became. Uh, I saw after the election of President Obama, the acceleration of the political correctness, the speech codes, the safe spaces, the trigger warnings, the microaggression, uh, and then eventually uh, the pronoun, uh, pick your personal prog- pro- pronoun movement. And uh, all of that began to happen uh, later in the 2000s. And I ended up uh, taking early retirement in 2017. And when I left academia, I left because it was no longer a marketplace of ideas. It was not welcoming to people like me. And I felt that I could have a greater impact talking to the rest of the world. And can universities be salvaged? Um, I hope so. And I think that the students and the parents, you know, they're really the consumers, that they have more say than they're exercising. And I believe that all it will take is one powerful university, an Ivy League university, to, to say, and actually mean it, that they stand for free speech, that we're going to have viewpoint diversity. When one university that's respected takes a stance, everyone else will follow suit.
0: Um, you know, it is it's it is really leaving a void, um, I think, both in terms of individuals um, who are, are trying to work the way up uh, in a way from perhaps humble upbringings like you did. It's also a huge deficit when you know, the, the, the universities like this are are shaping our, our elite. Um, oh, they're, yes. they're, they're putting people into the highest positions of power. Um, I was recently uh, mentioned on this podcast, you know, the, the cancellation of Elias Shapiro at Georgetown. You know, the students who are yelling about this, um, they're going to work at the DOJ very I mean, shortly. I know.
1: I know. And, you know, something that's really scary, too, is corporate America. Like when I was in graduate school, I took my business courses. It was all about corporations being focused on profits, you know. It wasn't politics, and now you have these uh, kids that, uh, you know, that were so afraid of a microaggression while they were in college and they needed safe spaces and affinity groups and to be coddled. They have gone into the workplace and created uh, the same kind of environment at major corporations, and um, at during the time that the university system was encouraging this, a lot of us laughed because we thought that when those students graduated, that they were going to go out into the real world and get jobs and find out, you know, that that's not how the real world operates. Well, the the, uh, joke was on us because they actually got hired, went out into the, quote, real world, and they created uh, the university campus all over again.
0: Yeah, I think so many of us feel like we are are, are never left the, we never left the campus now um because so many of the institutions are staffed by people who have the same ideology. I mean, do do you think that it's very dangerous for the country um to yeah. have smushed together these two because one is sort of a route absent politics is a route to power, success, uh, you know, elite positions. And the other is is now an ideological pipeline. And they seem to have become one in the same, which, I mean, you noted that uh, corporations have also gone uh, down this ideological path. I mean, wh- what is the end, end point if we keep those two pipelines of essentially elite power and ideology Um synonymous for the next 10 years. I think it'll be the end of America. And it disturbs me a
1: lot that, you know, we go to the Ivy league for our Supreme court justices for the most part, there are some exceptions and whether they call themselves liberals or conservatives, they are trained in such a way that I think they're usually very dangerous uh, at the end of the day, because they're so elitist. They assume that they know so much more than the common man and woman. They know more than uh, the, um, the uh, framers and uh, and they uh, cannot be trusted to uphold the constitution they're not about protecting our rights they're about imposing their will on the people and so we often thought that the the supreme court surely the supreme court will render justice surely the supreme court will follow the constitution well no more and um, i think that the end uh, goal unless we can turn things around is the destruction of our country I scarcely uh, recognize America and you know, like over the years I've had a negative um, um, perspective on people who were anti-American because I love my country. And now I feel like, you know, maybe I'm anti-American, maybe I'm anti-American now because there's so much that's taking place in our country that's evil that's wrong, that runs contrary uh, to my understanding of the Constitution, that I have to criticize uh, the country that I love because I don't recognize it. And I feel that unless we can turn things around, we will become more like a totalitarian society. Our leaders will will become more authoritarian and we will lose all of our rights, all the things that distinguish America from the other countries of the world it seems that America wants to blend in with the rest of the world in a way that's detrimental to our interests.
0: Um, Yeah, I've had the same kind of internal struggle, right? I've always been a great patriot and a great um, appreciator. My my parents come from another country they immigrated here, Uh right? I have always had an enormous appreciation for the systems of this country as being so different um, from what I would say is the norm uh, all, all over the world, which which has been um, much much shorter on on rights, on, the, on on freedoms, and and much longer on um, lack of opportunity, corruption, uh, and and true tyranny and oppression. Um, and I've had the same struggle with myself. Like I feel these sort of Chomskyite uh, feelings rising up in myself as I, I think about um, you know the fact that this ideology has taken over. So many important institutions in America that it, it it is becoming more and more difficult to distinguish um, the United States as like a country um, from from these ideologies because they they populate every elite institution. I mean, the thing that holds me back, of course, is that they really don't represent the country, as 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 you know. No, they um, don't. They they but they do represent the people who have overwhelmingly have, you know, access to the levers of power in the country. And that, that's that's a difficult thing for, I think, a conservative and a patriot to uh, wrap our minds around, right? Because it, it, it does run, you know, I, I grew up having contempt for Chomsky, for example, for uh-huh. so clearly hating his country. I always ask, you know, why, why does he stay here? I, I, I'm not, I know it's a simplistic argument, you know, love it or leave it. But in his case, he really seemed to hate so deeply all the things that made America, America, I genuinely wanted to ask him like, why, why do you, you know, why do you stay? Um, but now I feel like those same kind of impulses perhaps in some cases justified in, in others, not maybe just like sort of this emotional feeling of, of losing the country that you know, and love. Um,
1: well, what what so-
0: bothers me
1: is that we have a whole political party of people that seem to hate uh, our country. Uh, and the ones that don't are not willing to stand up and defend uh, a country. And people are operating out of fear because if they were not operating out of fear, I do believe that they would stand up and say, no, they would draw the line.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, one of, one of the um, things we've hit again over and over on this podcast is the percentage of Americans who now self-censor their views. And one of the, most potent things that people are afraid of, right, when they do um, engage with contemporary political debates, is the fear of being called a bigot, and most particularly a racist. And America does truly have this, like, Achilles heel of of race. And I think that's part of the reason, whatever you want to call it, wokeness um, has been so successful, Is 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 shifting from the relatively unfertile ground in terms of economic inequality, where Americans as a a sort of national character seem much less open to the argument that things are are sort of economically rigged or economically unfair than they are legitimately to arguments that things are racially unfair. Um, And so you've you've done some uh, you've worked on this issue uh, from a variety of perspectives. But one of the things I found most interesting is is you've you've really presaged concern about essentially a racial politics not being contained uh, that, that there isn't really a long-term way to have a racial politics for for blacks who are um, you know explicitly advancing what they like are calling black interests and then not to create a corresponding racial politics um, among whites or among um, other racial groups and and you've been kind of a, a, the lead of 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 warning about this and you you've done a series of interviews and and work on white nationalism in america i mean are you are you concerned um i, I guess i'm sure you are but uh you know are you more concerned now even than when you wrote this i think you you wrote um that that uh, you did those studies and those interviews uh, already uh, at least a decade and a half or two decades ago. I mean, where has white nationalism in America, not what's labeled white nationalism in the press, which is everything, um, but what what real white nationalism, where has that gone? And are you concerned about it more or less than two decades ago?
1: Here's what I'm concerned about, uh, and I talked about this some in the book, um, The New White Nationalism in America's Challenged Integration is that our country is becoming more and more racially diverse. In fact, whites are a minority in many parts of the country. And by 2047, there'll be a minority everywhere. And already with Generation Z, uh, the white children in Generation Z are a minority among their age group. And so that's where we are. And what I have uh, found is that the approaches that we're taking now are very divisive and there's nothing that's taken place that i see at the national level that will bring people together and bring about racial reconciliation and at a time when we should be treating everyone as equal under the law and practicing non-discrimination we are creating a divisiveness uh with the uh, DEI training, the uh, CRT training that makes all white people as oppressors regardless of where they come from. They can come from uh, Appalachia and parents never finished the third grade, living in some hollow generations of poverty. They're considered privileged above someone that may be uh, the offspring of a black professional or a black uh, billionaire. Um uh, all black people are considered victims. And I think it's very dangerous, you know, to keep pushing that argument that didn't make sense when I was in graduate school, it still doesn't that only, uh, white people can be racist. Uh, anyone can be racist, uh, from any group. And, uh, the racism is just as dangerous. And what's taking place today in our classrooms and in our workplaces, uh, is a discrimination that, violates the civil rights act of 1964 with its 1972 extensions and the equal protection clause of the constitution. Uh, We need to stand up and fight back against all of this because at the end of the day, we're destroying our country. And as far as white nationalism, there's not a lot of real white nationalism or white supremacy uh, taking place. Like when I wrote my book, uh, the new white nationalism in America, I bet you there weren't 2,000 Klansmen in the whole country. Uh, There were a lot of people concerned about discrimination uh, against uh, themselves, white people concerned about discrimination, white people feeling that racial preferences were unfair. What the left has done uh, is that they didn't have enough hate crimes that were legitimate. They did not have enough uh, real, true white supremacists and white nationalists they have redefined it so that all white people are white supremacists, all white people uh can be called white nationalists. And uh with hate crimes, nine out of ten times every time you read about a high profile hate crime uh in the news involving a racial and ethnic minority or a member of the LGBT community, you can bet your bottom dollar that a week or two later it'll be in fine print somewhere but the person who reported the crime was actually the perpetrator. That what we have is hate crime hoaxes because there are not enough real hate crimes taking place. And even when it comes to um, the police shootings and all the attention that they have gotten and the move to defund the police, I can tell you that the number of actual shootings of unarmed uh, people, but black people in particular, that that's down. And I've seen research that a minority police officer is more likely to fire their gun than a white police officer. And uh and so we're not dealing with racism or anything of the level that took place pre-Civil Rights era.
0: You know, it's it seems like there's a lack of appreciation for the difficulty of the project um that, that America has really put forward, right? Um you know, this this country really is a polyglot, right? Like, it, 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 there really are people from um, many, many different peoples in America uh, with different ethnic background, different religious background, different cultural background. Um, and and I, I, sometimes I feel like there's a lack of appreciation for how difficult that project is, that it has brought us actually um, enormous strengths in some way and not in the cheap way that it's used as diversity right, right. is our strength kind of thing, but it really has allowed us to assimilate sort of strengths um, from all over the world. But it it relied so heavily on us having something in common um, right. that we we could point to uh, as as Americans and having an American identity first. I mean, you say you look at the the national policy and you don't see anything that that is going to pull us together. Um, I, I will admit to being Frequently pessimistic. I mean, what what would let's say, um, forgetting for a moment about what is happening on the on the national level or on the state level. I mean, what do you think we really need in order to restore something that we do have in common as Americans? Um, because it seems to me that if you drop that, we we really don't have that much in common with each other anyway. And what what does somebody from you know whose family came from Mexico have, and uh, you know? Have in common with with people whose family came from the middle east or people who who have done ten generations in in American appalachia like there really isn't um a lot in common if we drop that but what do you what do you think um would be i d let's lay aside what's possible in terms of what politicians would do um but well what's possible i guess in in the imaginative sense
1: well uh, you know when you talk with people there's usually an app for that. But I can tell you that I have a book for that. And that is the book that I published in 2011, Be the People, a call to reclaim America's faith and promise. And in that book, you know, I talked about the dangerous direction our country was headed in. Uh, I warned about the uh, unhealthy alliance between the NSA and Google, because I saw that that would lead uh, to problems. And even back then, 2009, 2010, when I was working on the book, uh, we were moving towards things that seemed very Orwellian. Uh, my book concludes that we need you know, that shared background that comes from knowing our founding docu- documents. And so I think that every American or every person who wants to be an American, n- they need to read the Declaration of Independence. They need to read the Constitution. Um, They need to understand the Bill of Rights. And I would also say the Ten Commandments and that we do in America, what distinguished us from other countries is that we have had in the past a strong Judeo-Christian background. And whether people were religious uh, conservatives or cultural conservatives, they had a shared background, a a shared ideology. And uh, I think that that's the only thing that could bring us together. And what we find now is that all of these, quote, well-educated young people that are running the big tech companies, you know, these people, I don't know if they ever read the Constitution or they read it taught by someone that disdained America so that they have no respect for uh, free speech. Uh, it's it's the Her- Herbert makusa. Marxist approach to shutting down language that you disagree with. And so these people have no appreciation for America's distinctiveness in the world and just how successful we are. They want globalism because they want everyone equally poor except themselves. And they are the ones that are pushing things, you know, that relate to population control. They would be very happy uh, to see uh fewer, fewer people that are ordinary uh in the environment because they think that they're better than everyone else and so i think that they're very uh dangerous people they don't have values to restrain them and that's part of the problem if you want to solve the problem you go back to our judeo-christian values and principles you go back to the constitution the declaration of independence you uh begin to cherish the bill of rights and you go back to the 10 commandments and some of those biblical principles that have influenced the laws in America, you know, throughout our history.
0: Um, that's actually where I wanted to go next uh, with this conversation. I wanted to ask you if my premise in introducing you, you think is true or false. Um, and, and either way, what, what it means for our future together, because uh you know, one of the things that has tied Americans together over the years is, as you say, I mean, I think it's actually, as a as an agnostic person of Jewish background here, um, I I think it's honestly a little bit overly generous to call it Judeo Christian, although of course there is a serious overlap between the peoples of the book. Uh, America was a Protestant. Well, I'm going to stop, <laughs> stop you.
1: I want to stop you as an say, agnostic. Yeah. I used to be an agnostic too, and I used to believe, you know, kind of like. Uh, I mean, I don't know about your agnosticism, but mine was uh, more like one God, many paths. I thought all religions had something, you know, positive, positive to offer. And when it comes to uh, people that I know that have a Jewish background that are atheists, you know, I have difficulty understanding that because the very existence of the Jewish people and uh, and how they have been targeted throughout history. It screams and it speaks to the existence of a God. Existence of a God, and the Christian uh, Bible would not be possible without its. It's um, the uh, Jewish background, the the Old Testament, and uh, as a Christian who is Bible believing, I could not live my faith and live my life without the appreciation of the Jewish people and their heritage. And I just wish more Jewish people felt the same way. So it saddens me, too, when I run into people that um, are Jewish, who are atheists, and then of agnostics, I'll say you're young. I was in my 40s when I became a devout believer, but I was always spiritual. And when I look at my uh, rise from poverty and the things that happened for me, uh, when I was at uh, Princeton, I got to know the famous sociologist, Robert K. Merton, and he helped me uh, with uh, to get money for... Uh, the new white nationalism. And um, I, um, I mean, it's just, it's, I, mean, I don't know, you know, where I want to go with this conversation, but if I look at my life, God always put people in my path that had exactly what I needed when I needed it. And when he brought me out of academia, because I mean, it's so okay, the heat got me out of academia uh, in a way. I made I, th- I made that decision, but it was because there was something bigger and larger for me. And so everything I've seen about life is that we on this journey, we on this path. You know, God knows our name. Uh, he knows the every hair on our heads. He knows what's going to happen. He knows that we were going to be having this conversation today. And uh, the solution for America is not going to come from electing Republicans or, or more conservatives. It's going to be a part of God's plan. And where America is on the timeline, I don't know. I don't know if America will survive. I know that God judges nations, and uh, He certainly judged Israel many times, and He used Israel's enemies to punish Israel at times. And America is poised for judgment. We've done. Uh, we, in many ways, we've become uh, the, the most evil of the evil because we have abused, you know, our power and our privileges, and we've encouraged other nations to engage in behaviors that, um, that were just, uh, just totally immoral and unacceptable. And I don't think that we will be left blameless. And at this moment, we're talking about Putin and Russia and how evil Russia is. I don't think the U S can point many fingers because this is a country that, uh, doing this quote coronavirus pandemic, that our government officials and the big tech, that they did not allow people to share life-saving information about therapeutics that worked. Now we're learning all the stuff about the vaccines and how harmful they were and just various things that were hidden from the American people, but there were simple cheap therapeutics that could have saved millions of lives. And I believe that people knew it and they did not care. Now,
0: my soapbox. Uh, So I I probably disagree with almost everything that you just listed. But um, I I think that that's that's part of one thing that I very strongly do believe and agree with you on is the fact that um, we have shut down um, information, that we have a uh, sort of private system of censorship, which makes us very different um, from the Soviet Union um, in many ways. Uh, It's just a totally different... um, kind of tyranny when you have private actors coordinating to stop speech, for example, um, than when you have a a top down government censorship. censorship. Well, wait a minute.
1: We have the American government uh, providing subsidies uh, to media and to the tech companies. Many of them are getting grants from the government. They are they are responsible in the U.S. for the shutdown of information. And what I mentioned about the therapeutics, I mean, this stuff is coming out. It's documented. Uh, when President Trump mentioned about the hydroxychloroquine and how it could save lives, uh, now the FDA approves using it. How many people's lives could have been saved if they could have used that? And then with ivermectin, how they said, Oh, all, that's just a horse medicine, even though there's a scientist that got the Nobel Prize for the human use of it. And, uh, and now you know, people are acknowledging, okay, well, that saves lives too. And there's a nasal spray called X clear that applied to the FDA for a patent to be because it kills, um, their formula kills um, the uh, bacteria that causes coronavirus in the nose. And um, now, so they were not get granted their um, uh, approval by the FDA. But then there have been studies since then that shows that yes, it does ki- kill the virus. You know this simple nasal spray uh, that people use, and so uh, the the fact that our government, at a time when uh, people were losing their lives, that they shut out totally the scientists and the doctors, and you know all of these people that were saying no, there's a better way, there's a different way. In fact, some doctors were threatened with losing their licenses if they actually prescribed their patients medicines that they knew would save their lives. So, um, you know, I'm not, uh, I have studied this stuff very carefully and I am very worried about America. And I think that America stands poised for God's judgment. And I'm sorry, you know, like for taking the interview in a different direction, yeah, but that, that's fine. My soapbox.
0: <laughs> yes, that's fine. I mean, that this is, this is part of the, um, you yeah. know, I, I do think that what I was going to say about the, um, private companies is that Actually, what we are seeing is is a a wholly different form of censorship of conversations like this. Um, And I'm not a a scientific expert, although um, the the people that I do trust, uh, even personally in the medical field, uh, have not been enthusiastic about some of these therapeutics, um, just on the basis that that they didn't see them work in their own practice. But I I do think that we they have been discredited. I mean,
1: you you need to go back to some of those people, and also just look at what is coming out now about. the therapeutics and how the information was suppressed.
0: The, the uh, it- second part is certainly true, uh, as mm-hmm. in that that the the conversation was suppressed around a lot of these. I, I think one of the the interesting whether it's it's because this this isn't uh, a natural virus or because uh, it is uh, and just happens to have these these um, features. I don't know, but one of the interesting things about this pandemic, um, and I'm again not a medical. Expert, but um, has been how differently people react both to the virus itself and to various treatments. So, like even some of the the sort of approved treatments, um, people react wildly, wildly differently in a way that say they don't to the flu. And maybe that's because we've we've lived with the flu for such a long time that um, our our responses have gotten. Um, more homogenized over time as people are exposed multiple times. But um, one of the interesting things to me about this has been how wildly different people react. So um, the, the, in seemingly, um, I guess it's not a surprise, for example, that that people who are older react differently than people who are younger. But even within each age band, there have, there's wildly different responses to this. And perhaps it's just because we haven't been exposed to it over time. But um, I, I do want to circle back to the question of, sort of the role of Christianity in America. Because what, what got us on this this track was right. talking about whether or not such a thing as Judeo-Christian uh, sort of foundation. I, I think it does exist, but I think it's often used as a, a sort of a cheap political cover um, in a way of, of, of sort of including um, Judaism in America's founding, although there were Jews and they were very, um, you know, they, they were involved and there are actually, you know, founders or at least secondary tier founders um, who are Jews at the time. So America has always been a haven uh, in, in a way and, and hasn't doesn't have, for example, the history that that most European countries have with, with Judaism. Um, but I, I do think it's fair to say, and it's almost like a early version to me, early version of PC that we wanted to include. It was sort of this nice impulse that Americans have to try to include as many people as possible in the foundations. But I, I do think that it's well, fair to call America a Protestant Christian nation at its founding, which is not to say that it was that the popular word today, integralist, right? It, w- there was a separation, um, not as harsh as we have today, but I, I think that it's fair to call America a pr- Protestant Christian nation. And I guess I wonder if you think it's fair to call it a post-Christian nation today.
1: Okay. Let me say that those uh, Puritans and pilgrims that wanted America to be the new Israel, you know, they came here to, you know, to take advantage of the covenant, that um, God had with the Jewish people, uh, so even those Christians—they were Christians—but they wanted to be the new Israel. So we can agree on that,
0: right? I don't actually know what you're referring to. Oh, okay. Um, I'm just—I'm okay. just talking historically. No, no, no. I don't know what what the different branches are, but oh, I, no, I'm no, no. Just speaking historically that uh, was talking you know, about Protestant the- Christianity was the the by far the dominant religion in America, although it was split into right, different right. sects.
1: Okay, yeah, you, can, you, could, you could say that America's many of their founders were Christians, but among the Puritans, that they wanted to set up a new Israel. They wanted a covenant with God similar to the covenant he had with the Jewish people. But the laws of America, even the Sunday Blue Laws, and all of these things that were adopted you know, by the colonies. And when I was growing up in Virginia in the 60s, We had Sunday blue laws. You know, everything was closed on Sunday. You couldn't uh, buy alcohol, all of those things. That was influenced by the whole Bible, the Old Testament. And I think the Jewish connection comes from, you know, the Old Testament and how you don't have Christianity without uh, Judaism. Uh, And then you asked me about post-Christian America. I think uh, it's post-Christian in the sense that uh, the people that are trying to cancel our way of life have certainly targeted Western civilization and Christianity is a part of Western civilization. And so uh, it is targeted in a way that other religions are not. Uh, one of the, A few years ago, uh, it was noted in Tennessee and also other parts of the country where you have large Muslim populations that the school systems have accommodated their need to pray several times a day. Whereas, you know, the Supreme Court has ruled no prayer in school. Uh, my position would be everyone prays or no one prays, uh, but get it, make a decision. Either everyone prays or no one prays. Uh, but Christianity has been targeted in a way that other religions have, have not. And also, conservative uh, uh, Jewish people are targeted in the same way. Because anyone that uh, stands up for, for traditional values, morals, families, they're gonna be targeted.
0: Yeah, so I, I um, you know, recently, for example, there was a, a poll that came out, um, at least long-term Pew surveys on religion that showed that for the first time in America's history, uh, the majority, 51% of people are not certain about the existence of God and so that that is kind of what i mean by post christian um i I'm, I'm by no means saying this is a good thing i think my question would be do you think that america can hold together these disparate groups without um uh, because it seems to me that protestant christianity was actually something that was shared among a vast majority um of Americans of all different sort of cultural racial backgrounds, but most of them were Christian. Then for a while, you know, that was on decline. Um, but still there was, I think even into the sixties, I, re- I remember reading, um, gosh, and I'm going to show how, how, uh, not up. I am on American, uh, sort of, uh, religious history here, but, um, th- there's, there were two pastors. Um, one was Falwell, but the other one, Billy, Billy Graham, Right. Um, sorry. So I'm. I'm uh, this is not oh. my. As, as I, this is not my wheelhouse of of uh, of knowledge. But I remember reading Billy Graham's sermons um, when he passed. Mm-hmm. Uh, they published. They republished them in, in his honor. And um, and it was so clear to me that when he was writing, even um, you know, he was writing to a nation that had a foundation of Christianity. Right. Uh, that He thought had. You know. He was kind of calling people back to write a foundation of christianity he was speaking to people on the basis that he knew that they were christians and perhaps nominally christians but they uh, weren't living their values or they weren't um you know they weren't going to church or they they were um living in a contradictory a contradictory way to their faith and so he was he was drawing on that common knowledge and background um and and faith as a way of trying to guide people's behavior it struck me that that sermon couldn't really be popular in America today because I don't know um, that there are enough people who have that foundation or that knowledge at all, that it would make sense to them as a call home. What what do you think about that?
1: Well, I mean, if I say Jesus Christ is Lord and savior, is he he's the only way uh, then some people could say that's hate speech. Uh, When it comes to the surveys that say, you know, that fewer people believe in God, where there are a lot of Jewish people that I know believe in God. There are a lot of Muslim people that I know believe in God. Christian people believe in God. Uh, and the people that say that they don't believe in God, they are worshiping some kind of God, some, t- some kind of deity, even if, if it's themselves, that they're still worshiping some type of uh, God image of themselves. Uh, but Christianity itself, I think that is the religion that is being targeted now. And so the answer to the question, are we a post-Christian society? I would say uh, yes. And that's why we have to engage in counter-cultural living. For Christians, we're living in ancient Babylon, uh, the way Jews were, you know, back in the Old Testament. Uh, And so I don't think you can understand American society or what is taking place in the world with world politics, unless you're familiar with the Bible. And, uh, there, uh, the Bible, you know, it's not a science book. It's not a history book. The people that have studied it have just really been amazed and astonished by the prophecies and how they track what's taken place in our society, even today. And, um, my book, be the people, a call to reclaim America's faith and promise has a chapter on America's religious roots, where I do acknowledge you know, that the constitution itself, it doesn't mention God. It was signed in the year of our Lord, but it was uh, drafted by people who were deeply religious and they cared enough about religion that they didn't really want it mingled that much with politics. And, um, the, the, uh, I would argue that the, the framers, when they drafted the constitution, they were not trying to, um, divorce people's religious beliefs and their faith from what they did in public life, they were trying to prevent America from having a uh, national church or a state church. Uh, And that um, separation of church and state had to do with not having one denomination uh, being the official denomination of the country. They did not want to go through what uh, had taken place in England.
0: Yeah. And America had a soft, I mean, a soft version. So even after the the Declaration and even after the Constitution, um, the, the First Amendment only applied to the feds. So that, of course, there were establishments in, in most of the northern states. Um, and then those only ended when it, it became clear that in fact, it wasn't going to be one denomination. So there was a kind of natural um, disinclination and disestablishment in America exactly because it was even within the, the bounds of Protestant Christianity was somewhat polyglot. It had a lot of different Congregationalists and um, Unitarians who were much more serious than they are today, um, but, but had different denominations. And when it became clear that the money was going to start shifting from one denomination to another, uh, even those States disestablished their state right. churches. But I, I guess m- my question is all the way through when Billy Graham was writing this, there, there has been this, this Christian heritage in America. Right. And it seems to me that if, if we were to have another great awakening today, I hope uh, that we do, <laughs> that that it would have to. So I, here, let, let's wrap up on this question. Um, do you think there's anything in common between the way that um, wokeness has, as John McWhorter observed, become something close to a religion um, among especially among America's elites? Uh, do, you, do you think that that is connected to the absence of Christianity or the receding of Christianity, uh, as, as America's religion of, of, um, of choice, if not of establishment. Um, and then do do you think that it it is kind of a a type of great awakening and do you think that there's any undoing a sort of woke great awakening, um, or perhaps maybe undoing it by by, uh, a a Christian great awakening?
1: Uh, When I uh, published, um, uh, be the people, 78% of Americans uh, are, are, are identified as Christian. And that was a uh, 2009. And, uh, and so, you know, f- between 2009 and now you have these changes that you're talking about and McWhorter and other people have pointed out that CRT operates very much like a religion because it involves confession, repentance, uh, 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 redemption. But to get to redemption, you have to continually uh, confess as a white person that you are racist. You never get out of that because they argue that racism is permanent. And so um, I I think it will collapse on its own because uh, it's just, um, it's empty. It's divisive. It makes people uncomfortable. And one reason why people go along with it is that they're fearful uh, of speaking the truth because they don't know how they will be harmed if they speak up and say, I don't agree with this. Uh, this is wrong. Uh, the Christian religion and, and the Jewish religion as well, you know, teaches that man was made in God's image. And so we all have this spark of divinity. And so if you believe that human beings are in God's image and that we all brothers and sisters, uh, how you treat, uh, other people would be quite different from if you are an atheist and you believe, you know, that, uh, we have no purpose, no rhyme, you know, that we, uh, uh, the products of evolution and all, I mean, if you have nothing that's anchored in any type of moral basis, I think that leads to an emptiness. And I believe that the wokeness, some of the things that they're teaching in schools, that's why we have so many suicides among young people. Uh, can you imagine these little kids being told that they can change the agenda and they may not be really little girls and little boys? Just how confusing that would be to them and how harmful it would be. Um, uh, so I think wokeness uh, will destroy itself. I would like to see a a reawakening where we go back to our traditional values and principles and we respect the family once again. And, uh, you know, churches are mixed bag. They've been taken over by some of them been taken over by social justice warriors, and uh, they're not offering real solutions. Some are, some aren't, uh, but we need to um, remember you know, who we are, where we have come from. Uh, otherwise, you know, we will be in the dustbins of history.
0: Well, I completely agree uh, that we need a solution to the Hualabekian crisis of meaning in the West. Um, I, I don't know what that solution is going to be yet, and perhaps the solution will be worse than the, the disease, depending on what it is. Um, but, but I hope it'll be, as you say, a return to uh, return to more traditional sources of American and Western um, ideas. And uh, I guess we can both we can end on on that note. But thank you so much, Dr. Carol Swain, for for mm-hmm. joining me on High Noon, and thank you for the even the the discussion that we, we're not allowed to have. <laughs> we'll see if this gets banned from YouTube, right? Um, just for merely having this discussion. Uh, so we'll, we'll find out. But um, it, it was a great pleasure to have you on. Thank you for for giving us your time today.
1: Thank you. And just don't tag the part that's politically incorrect and you'll be fine. (laughs)
0: Uh, That's America today. So thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.